This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Now, if you... Weeks ago, uh, I started talking about a few statements that we've gathered together that explain what we, what we care about as a church. And the, the first one that I brought to you is that we as a church, we, we want you to get everything that God wants for you. We want you to experience the life that Jesus purchased for you when he died on the cross because when he died on the cross, he paid a price for you to experience life, real, authentic, unfiltered life. God wants that for you. And then I shared with you that we want you to love and be loved by God. We want you to experience worship the way that God designed it to be. And so today I want to spend a little bit of time talking about another one of those statements, another one of the things that we value here at Vortex, and it's just simply encapsulated in this simple statement that we are alive to love and be loved by others. Sometimes as Christians, we get so caught up in the fact that the message of Jesus reconciles us to himself, that we have a relationship with God, that we forget that that relationship that we have with God is to change our hearts so that we can live in right relationship with other people. It should transform not just the way that we think about God and the way that we relate to God, but the way that we do relationships with other people as well. So I'd kind of expand that thought by saying it this way. At Vortex, we build selfless and loving relationships with others, with other believers to share and receive what God is doing because we don't do life alone. We are indeed better together. You weren't created to be alone. And God exposes that truth in the very beginning of this story when Adam is alone in creation and he looks at him as he is alone and he says this simple statement, it is not good for man to be alone. And I don't know where this foreign concept that's very alive in our culture that you can be a, a Christian and disconnected from others came from, but it is not the truth, and it is definitely not the truth of the gospel, not the truth of the Bible. It's a statement that's made at the very beginning of the book of First John, and First John is personally in my devotional time where I have been camping out for a while, and so I want you to see this because this has become very convicting for me personally. Look at this. First John, beginning in, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we heard from Jesus. So in other words, we got this straight from Jesus. This is the message we heard from Jesus, and now we're declaring it to you. And John's going to create a metaphor here that I want to explain. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. In other words, God has exposed everything to us. There's nothing hidden in him. This idea of the exposure of light and the 
what is hidden in darkness is going to become a massive theme throughout this letter that John is writing to his churches that he's pastoring. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but we go on living, now he's going to expand, living in spiritual darkness. We're, we're, we're lying. If we say that we have a right relationship with God, that we are living this life that Jesus purchased for us, but we go on living in spiritual darkness, we're lying. It's not true. And we are not, look at this, practicing the truth. I love that phrase, practicing the truth. Because a lot of times, especially in our culture, we like to think it's more about what we know. That we need to learn more. And John's saying, no, you don't need to learn anymore. You need to do what you know. You need to practice the truth that you already know. But this is, this is, I just want to zero in on this last sentence. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Look at that. If we are living in the light, if we are living the right life, living fully exposed to God, living the life that he wants us to as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And that's a word that we toss around culturally a lot, fellowship. We say that word, and we're familiar with that word often because as Christians, we've leveraged that a lot. Some of the churches we grew up in have fellowship halls, right? And that's where you got together and y'all had potluck dinners, which meant you brought whatever you didn't want to eat at home, right? You just all brought it together and ate leftovers from everybody, right? That, I, Fellowship, it's, it's a term that we often don't understand, but I want you to see this is very simple. Following Jesus means that we will have fellowship with each other. It's impossible, this verse makes it very clear, that it is impossible to follow Jesus and not have fellowship. You can't. It's impossible. And we've often misunderstood the term fellowship. So I want to expand it for a moment and let you see what it really does mean to love and be loved by others. See, fellowship, let me expose some things that it is not first. Fellowship is not, number one, hanging out with your family. Going over to grandma's house or mom's house to have Sunday dinner is not fellowship. It may be a good time. The, the Christmas where our whole family comes together, that is not fellowship. Fellowship is not number two. It's not hanging out with friends, not even if they're Christians. A lot of times we'll get done hanging out with our friends and we'll go, man, that's good fellowship. No, well, it wasn't fellowship. It was just having friends, and friends are important. As a matter of fact, Jesus would look at his close followers in John 15 and call them friends. But friendship is so important because friendship is the avenue that God delivers fellowship through. So I want you to see what fellowship is. Look at this. Fellowship is a meaningful and mutual relationship where God and his word are at the center of the relational experience. This is why hanging out with our friends isn't fellowship. Because it's not simply, we're not always getting together and saying, hey, you know what? 
let's really dive deep into each other's lives. No, we get together and we have a good time, right? It's not, let's get together and talk about this passage. No, we get together and we, we have a fire and we roast marshmallows and we make s'mores, right? It, it, this is, that's not fellowship. But I want you to see this, that the Bible is clear that if we're going to follow Jesus and we make that choice, we will have fellowship. It's not a you might, it's not a you could, it's you will. So it's very important to get that right. I love what John MacArthur said about fellowship. Look at this. Fellowship is sharing in the reality of our spiritual life. You cannot share that divine life. Look at what needs to be without sharing in divine truth and divine purpose and divine will. That there's something spiritual that has to be the center of the relational experience if it's going to be real fellowship. And I believe, honestly, that this is why many of us in our Christian life feel like something is missing. Because we don't have real fellowship. See, the problem with fellowship is that we like the idea of it, but we don't like it in practice. Because to have real, authentic fellowship, we have to give up some things to get some things. It's actually a principle that runs throughout our Christian life. This is why Jesus would look at you and say, if you're willing to lay your life down for me, then you can find your life. You have to be willing to give up before you get and see, the problem is, is that it's not even just the simple we must give up the time so that we can get the fellowship. There's more that we have to give up. As a matter of fact, I would say this, that in fellowship, we gain purpose while losing our identity. I mean, the truth is, is that most of us, whether we realize it or not, have our own personal agendas for God and for the world. And when we live intimately with other people, it pushes against our own personal identities so that we come together with a common purpose. I believe that the lack of true biblical fellowship is why the church in America is so fractured today. This is important. Because the more that we live intimately with each other, the greater our common purpose becomes. We gain purpose, but we lose our own identity. We gain intimacy while losing our comfort. Because here's the thing about living with intimacy. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to talk to somebody about what's going on in your relationship with your spouse. It's uncomfortable to ask for help and guidance when it comes to handling money God's way. It's uncomfortable to talk about the fear and insecurity that you're struggling with. It's uncomfortable 
but what we gain through that. And that intimate relationship is so much greater than the discomfort. It's important to realize that for us to experience fellowship, we have to be willing to give up some things so that we can get some things. Now, at Vortex, this is why we believe groups are so important. Because we believe here, small groups are designed for fellowship. And we have two different kinds of groups. We have serve groups and, and small groups. And about a, about a year ago, we made a decision to kind of step away from really leaning into small groups. And the reason was is that I didn't feel like we were doing it really well. And we needed to kind of come, kind of get back, reset, and come up with an a, a approach that kind of matches the way that we need to do it. And so we set out a challenge, and it's been in your 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 kind of worship God for a few weeks, and that what challenge was supposed to start this week, where we were going to ask you to do two nights together, this Sunday night and next Sunday night, but but we didn't get to talk about it last Sunday night because we won together, so we moved it to just one night together, which is next Sunday night, one night together on September thirtieth. The reason we want to do this is we want to challenge every single person in our church to join together in fellowship. You may be saying, I, I don't, I'm not a part of a small group. How do small groups work? Well, I want to explain how small groups are kind of going to, going to work for us from this point forward. This is small groups work when we gather people that we're connected to and host them for a spiritual conversation. If you can gather a couple people together, you have a small group. The mistake that we've made is we've made the mistake of trying to gather people for other people. And as a church, the truth is we're not capable of doing that, but you are. You may have a couple friends that you eat lunch with at work every day. You can gather them together and have a small group. You may have two or three friends. Maybe they're families that you regularly spend time with them. You can gather together in a small group. You may have a guy or two that you work out with regularly. You can gather together in a small group. You relationally have the ability to gather people together in a small group. And when you gather together, the purpose of gathering together is not just to eat a meal. It's not just, it's to have a spiritual conversation. Now, some of y'all may, may be wondering if, if you're here just saying, saying where, where did this idea of small groups come from? It actually came out of the early church. And so I want to show you this scripture out of, John, or out of Acts 3, okay? And, and let me set this up for you. Peter has just preached the best sermon ever because 3,000 people without a microphone or worship band just got saved, okay? It's amazing. Hard to believe. This amazing move of God is beginning to take hold. And I want you to watch the, how the, the writer Luke describes the beginning and the origin of the church. Look at this. I, and I'm going to stop throughout this and kind of explain and point out some things that I want to make clear. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I, I just want to stop there. Notice that it doesn't say they devoted themselves to Bible study. 
Now, there's a strong differenti- differentiation being made right here that's really important. What, what Luke is saying is he's saying these people were willing to be led. They were willing to be led. They were willing to listen to the apostles, and they were willing to listen to their teaching and process their teaching and follow their teaching. It's very important because unless a church is willing to be led, it's just a bunch of individuals doing their own thing. This is why in fellowship, we lose our individual identity and we gain a common purpose. Look at this. And fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals. How many of y'all love that part right there, right? Including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. I want you to get this. Some of y'all need a miracle in your life, but I want you to notice that intimacy preceded the miracle. Intimacy preceded. They came before the miracle. We're going to do a series next month on miracles. I promise you don't want to miss it. But I want you to get this in your life personally, that intimacy with God and with others precedes the miracle in our own life. We need that. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They worshiped together at the temple each day. Notice that to have the small, they didn't give up the big. They didn't give up going to church on Sunday so that they could be in a smaller group and have intimacy. No, they still continued to push the envelope on the larger gathering while they met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared all their meals with what? Great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And look this. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I want you to see this again. That intimacy preceded evangelism. The more intimate the church became, the more it attracted people to it. What we want to do in small groups is the exact same thing that the early church did. They just gathered together those that they had relationship with. And they processed the teaching of the apostles together. You may be asking, well, how would we do that? The tool is in your hands. Every week that you come to church here, we give you fill-in-the-blank notes. And on the back of it, there's a small group study. It is not the kind of small group study that you would walk out and have to do a bunch of work. It's just a bunch of questions. Why is it questions? Because fellowship is centered on spiritual conversation. And what we're doing is giving you a tool to facilitate that conversation every single week. So we want you to gather together and connect the people that you are connected to and host a small group. Let me explain what it means to host. What does it mean to host a group? We're going to use the letters in the word host to explain it. H. Have a heart for people. It's impossible to host a group if you don't care about people. But I'm going to be honest with you, too. If you care about God and love God, you will care about people. It's impossible 
for those two things to not exist together. As our heart grows for God and for the things of God, our heart for people will grow as well. Oh, open up a space to meet with people. Open up a space to meet with people. Now, to explain that, that doesn't mean it has to be your house. You can open up a room at a coffee shop, right? You can invite a couple of people to go out to dinner with you. But the whole purpose of opening up space in your life and in their lives for this meeting to happen. S, share your heart with people. Share your heart with people. It's impossible to have intimacy if you're not willing to share. And so lead the way. Share your heart. Ask the question. Share your heart in the answer. Make a choice to be vulnerable. Make a choice to be uncomfortable. Choose to be intimate. Because after that, laying down of your comfort, you're going to get something that you would never expect. And God's going to do the miracles that you need. T, take turns inviting others to do the same. Take turns inviting others to do the same. So I believe that for many of us, that nagging feeling that's existed below the surface, that there's something that's missing in our life and in our spiritual life. That nagging feeling is just simply the feeling that I need fellowship. I need to be connected to people. I need this deep spiritual connection that happens when God breaks down the walls and we can love each other and we can be loved. And so we're going to invite you to do that next Sunday night, to gather on a Sunday night. We, we don't have ball games on Sunday nights. We don't have any kind of practices on Sunday. You, you have free time, okay? So make time. No excuses. And join together, gather together in a small group. Because I believe that God can do in that moment something that you never would have anticipated. Now that old hymn, one of my favorites, it is well, with my soul was written by a Chicago lawyer named Horatio Spafford. If you've ever heard the story of the writing, he had received a telegram as he sent his wife and his four daughters across the Atlantic to England um, from his wife after the ship that they were on had sank. He received a telegram from his wife, I survived, stop alone. In the sinking of that ship, his four daughters had drowned. And as he traveled across the ocean to join his wife, the captain came and got him. So we're nearing the place where your family's ship hit, hit an iceberg and where your daughters would have died. And as the legend has it, he went below into his room and he penned the words to it as well with my soul. So in the two weeks that we're going to spend in this series, further into the vortex, I'm going to go back and revisit two points that are very central to our vision and what we believe we're called to do as a church. And the first one is that we are to invite people to make Jesus the center of their lives. It's impossible to go through a moment like that and say, it is well with my soul if Jesus is not the center of your life. 
as you read the words to that song, though trials may come, I can still say it is well with my soul. The reason that he could say that, and this is the first thing in your notes, is that we will find our greatest strength from what lies at the center of our lives. We will find our greatest strength from what lies at the center of our lives. And it's so easy to get off. It's so easy to put the wrong thing at the center of our life. So how do you know if you have the wrong center? How do you, how do you know? How can you identify if the, the wrong thing has become the center of my life? The first thing in your notes today is that you're living with unreasonable levels of anxiety and fear. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment and just say this. There's some of us that deal with anxiety and fear as the result of mental illness. Okay? And I, I just want to say this up front. It's not a sin to be sick. It's not. If you are diagnosed with uh, a mental illness, I, I want you to understand that, that in the same way that when we get the the stomach virus or the flu, that you should seek help and we should listen to doctors and we should pursue treatment that helps us become healthier. But sometimes the anxiety that we live with is born out of a desire to control something that we cannot control. Which is why it says in Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything. Notice that that's kind of an all-inclusive statement. Don't be anxious about anything. It's never an excuse or reason that is valid, according to the Bible, to be anxious. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says it this way, as Paul is writing to the young pastor Timothy, God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. God didn't give us, and when we're dealing with unreasonable levels of anxiety and fear, it's normally an indicator and a pointer that there's something wrong at the center of our lives. And the second thing is when our life isn't producing the right kind of fruit. When the product of our decisions and behaviors is hate and fear, and anxiety, and depression, and withdrawal, a lack of intimacy, when, when the fruit itself is not the fruit that God wants to produce in your life. It's an indicator that something is wrong at the center of our lives. It's so easy to get the wrong center. It's just so easy to do that. I thought I'd just take a moment and share three ways that we create the wrong center in our life. Number one, we elevate the gift above the giver. We elevate the gift above the giver. We take that good thing that God has given us and we begin to care more deeply and respond more fully to it than we do to God. We elevate the gift above 
the giver. Number two, we attempt to make a good thing a supreme thing. Now, I want you to understand today that children are good. Having a career that you love is a good thing. Even better feeling that you are called into that career is a good thing. I want you to know that loving your spouse and having a loving relationship with them is a good thing. Having friends is a good thing. But they're not supreme things. And it's very easy to elevate good things to the role of supreme things. Number three, we create what we could call a functional savior that's not strong enough to save us. Create a functional savior that's not strong enough to save us. We look for saving out of something that doesn't have the capacity to save us. Let me just ask you this question. When a tough time comes, who do you call first? Who do you call first? Do you call your mom? Do you call your dad? Do you call your spouse? Do you call your best friend? Or do you call on the name of Jesus? Because sometimes we can make those good things functional saviors, and they're not strong enough to save you. We see this in several areas in our lives. I mean, I think that we see this often for, for guys. We see this in our careers. Right? We, we, we find a, a functional savior in our career. I can work harder and provide more money. I can work harder and climb the corporate ladder so that I can give more to my family. I, I'm, I'm Now, all of a sudden, my career is what's saving us and providing for us, not God. It works good. I mean, Genesis 3 says it this way, by the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat. Work is a good thing. God created us to work. But notice this, what he says in 1 Peter 4. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. That thing that you can do that makes you so good at what you do is a gift from God. God gave you that gift. And if we ever invert the order and think that our job is what provides us money and not God, then we start to place a level of expectation on our careers that shouldn't be there. It's so interesting to me that people will pray so hard when they don't have a job. And they'll thank God so much when they finally get a job. But two months into having a job, all of a sudden, the money that they're making is their money. And they don't think about it as being provided for by God. We do this with our kids. This is probably the greatest mistake that we make in our culture. I mean, don't get me wrong. Psalm 127 verse 3 says this, children are a gift from the Lord. I love that. We have three kids. I love them all so much. 
and they each have their own distinct personalities. They're each ex- they each express love so differently. It is such a fun thing to be their parent. But after having three kids, I can tell you this definitively. I am absolutely convinced that none of them are God. I mean, I've, I've watched them eat spaghetti before, okay? Fully convinced they are not God at all. Which is why I think in Psalm 127, which is this brilliant passage on parenting. The Bible says, how joyful is the man whose quiver is filled with them, with filled with children. Notice that the, the metaphors being drawn, that, that our kids are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Arabs are not meant to be collector's items. They're meant to be sent out. Not held on to. See, a lot of times in, in parenting in our culture, what we do is we gather, we gather, we don't send, send. And our kids are not meant to be oftentimes what we've made them. They're not meant to be the center of our lives, our families. The center is designed to be Jesus. See, we'll find our greatest strength from what lies at the center of our lives. And I can promise you that my kids are not strong enough to be the center of our life. I believe this is where the emptiness phenomenon of folks who get divorced after the kids have left home, this is where it came from. Because they're never designed to be the center of your life. Jesus makes this brilliant statement. It's very bold in John 14 that really describes what is supposed to be central in our lives. Look at this, John 14, verse 6. Jesus told them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father. No one can get to God except through me, which means that if Jesus is saying the truth, if Jesus is speaking the exact truth, then every other religion is false. There's no way for there to be another path to God if Jesus is being honest. Either he's a liar or he's really supposed to be our Lord. So let's think about what he says he is in this, the way. You ever notice how Jesus created this movement that we're a part of? He went up to people and simply invited them. Hey, come follow me. Come follow me. Come follow me. The truth. The truth. It means that Jesus knows the way. He knows the next step. He knows what's supposed to happen. Jesus is the embodiment of the word. His life is the model that we're supposed to follow. And the life. The result of Following Jesus is this authentic life that we were designed to live, that he purchased the rights for us to have when he died on the cross. See, if you've ever studied architecture, you would know that what's at the center of a building and what's at its foundation is really where its strength is, which paints a very different picture when you consider what Jesus taught in Matthew 7, where he told this story of people who built two different homes. One built a home that was on top of the rock, on a foundation, and one was on sand. 
And then the storm came. How many of y'all know that storms are going to come, right? Rains are going to come. Winds are going to come. It's going to happen, right? We've lived through that in the last week or so. And you see, as he's telling the story, he says, it's very simple. The one who had built their foundation on the, on the sand, the, the shifting, unpredictable sand, the home was destroyed. But the one who built their house with the right foundation and the right center withstood the storm. So as we think about where your center is, let me ask you a question. This may seem totally irrelevant to this talk. But let me ask you this. Think about this and be honest with yourself. Where, what is the source of your greatest joy? Where, where does your joy come from? What, what's the, the source of your greatest joy? Because really at the source of your greatest joy, what we're going to find is really a perspective of where you're looking for your greatest strength. And it's sad to say that very few of us in this room would say that our greatest joy comes from our relationship with God. Look what Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 8, verse 10, that the joy of the Lord will be your strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. What's he saying? He's saying there that, that in the middle of this huge task of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, and he's saying, listen, I want you to understand that if we can choose to place Jesus at the center of this, if we can choose to make Jesus and God the center of our experience, the center of our work, then we will find strength in the joy that we find in him. But far too often, our greatest joy comes from other things. Not our relationship with God, but from the gifts that we've elevated above the giver. But from the functional saviors that we've created. See, you're designed in many ways to be weak because you're designed to need his strength. And some of us have felt that weakness because we've got our sinner off. See, Jesus is the only strength that can cover our weakness and the strength never runs out. For where I am weak, he is strong. Jesus wants to be the very center of your life. And by that, I don't just mean the center of your spiritual life. I mean the center of your family, the center of your career, the center of your relationships, the center of your finances, the center of everything. And if he's not, whatever is at the center isn't strong enough to carry you through. So maybe today, maybe today for us to take the next step further into the vortex us kind of confessing that, God, I've got this wrong. I've gotten off on what's at the center of my life. And I'm going to invite you again to be the center of mine.
Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.